film, we're going to talk about handing off creative control and collaborating and all kinds of stuff. Um, I'm most fascinated in the cult of Mamiya, I think we're going to get to as well. I don't get to talk about that an awful lot. <laughs> but before we get to all of that, we have to talk about how it is that you first picked up a camera, why it is that you now call yourself a photographer. So what led you down the incredibly disturbing path of picking up a camera? Well, there came a point where I was starting to just take pictures with the phone. Um, it was semi-decent. You know, we're talking back Nokia days a little while ago. And I would just, you know, take pictures of kind of surroundings and stuff like that. Um, but actually it was really, I mean, essentially I started on, on a phone like lots of my peers. So it was when I got my first iPhone that things really changed because the, the camera was a step up. Obviously, I got into the world of apps and being able to edit photos on your phone. And that just changed everything for me. That really infused me to want to capture more of what was around me, what I was seeing. Um, and also, it was when I was starting to use Instagram for more than sharing pictures of my dinner. And I sort of fell into this community of other London photographers or people who were either starting out or who were at a certain intermediate level with their photography and going to like, started going to a couple of photography meetups and walks and stuff like that. Um, and I was still doing a lot of, so my background before is really mainly DJing and music production. So up until that point, that was still, that, that was still the big chunk of my life. And it got to the point where I was starting to think about getting a proper camera and a friend of mine who is an event photographer um, put me onto the idea of buying a mirrorless camera. You know, he sold it to me on the sort of proviso that I didn't have to go out and spend four grand on Canon equipment. I could get something for much cheaper than that, still be able to use different lenses and it would be smaller, um, which for me in hindsight was the best decision I made because it meant I kept the camera with me all the time. Uh, it didn't right. seem like a ball weight to carry a camera around. Um, and up until that point, I was like, okay, how do I fund this purchase, you know? And up until that point, I had this long treasured Roland synthesizer from the 80s that I used to use a lot in my music production. I swore up until that point that I would never sell this piece of equipment. Well, that thing went on eBay the next week. <laughs> <laughs> I made about three or 400 quid on top of what I paid for it originally. And that helped me fund the purchase of my first camera. Um, and that's when I realized I was starting to take stuff a bit more serious than just getting my phone out and doing a few snaps. Um, and yeah, it took me a while as, it, as, as so many things when you start, you, you know, to actually kind of try to, get to what the hell you're doing with this machine that's got all these settings. And, you know, you, you go through the stages of having everything in automatic mode and then you start to get into the semi-automatic modes and then you start to kind of push the limits. And, but that first camera was such a sort of a big thing for me. You know, it was, it was proper, you know, it was, it captured raw files. It wasn't just something that took JPEG images, you know, it was something that really gave me a bit of a step up and a bit more of a mission to want to get better at, you know, capturing stuff um and and again you know i hadn't really gotten into 
editing raw ph- photographs at that point. I was still editing a lot of stuff on my phone. And I mean, I've recently, I've, about three years ago, I went back through my old Instagram posts and I was horrified. <laughs> Some <laughs> of the shit I used to post, just in terms of like the way I used to process stuff. You know, we were talking back in the days. And remember that? What was that app everyone jumped on back in the day? Color Splash, was it? Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Where you, you know, you, you banged everything in black and white and then you could reveal bits of stuff and cut I me mean, all that sort of shit. I mean, I, I was honestly, I was horrified at the way I used to edit some of my photos. I mean, obviously you look back and you see how far you've come, but when you look at some of these images, you're just like, oh God. Well, in terms of like subject matter, you know, obviously you, you're now taking these fantastic portraits is how I found you, but was people the first ideal subject for you or did you start off somewhere else hell no um anything but so when i started (laughs) um i started in architecture and you know photographing buildings and photographing lookups and stuff like that and um kind of you know getting up at like four in the morning to go and photograph sunrise at Tower Bridge and all that rubbish that a lot of us were into at a particular point in time. Um, so that's where I started. The people thing was really, I mean, in hindsight, the people thing was was at the back of my mind, but not obviously not the way it is now. Like I, I used to remember sort of uh, commuter journeys on, say, the Tube. Um, this was going back a long way now where I would see somebody in the tube who looked really interesting. And I would actually think at that moment, if I knew how to use a camera, I would ask that person to take their picture. And we're going back like 10 years ago, like that would happen on occasional like um, commuter journeys. But no, the people thing was really not, not even anywhere near the forefront of my mind, apart from say the odd street portrait. Like once I started to get to know how to use the camera that I was using at that particular point in time, then every now and again, I would drum up the confidence to ask someone in the street if I could take their portrait, being perfectly prepared for them to say no. But if they said yes, obviously that was a bonus. But no, it was still for a while, I was still on that sort of, uh, architecture, street photography, buildings, photographing sunsets. That that was my sort of thing for a while, you know. Um, but the portrait thing, um, that sort of started when I, I think I started to follow very steadily uh, portrait photographers on Instagram. And seeing more of that stuff made me think about whether it was something that I could try for myself, essentially. Um, and I, I think the way I started was I contacted people who had modelled for other photographers I knew because those photographers had posted pictures of same right. people. Um, and so I would then direct message a couple of these people and say, listen, you know, would you be up for, for kind of shooting, doing a, an actual shoot? Um, but actually, at that point, I still was kind of, I wasn't particularly confident that anyone would say yes. Because at that point, my feed was very different than what it is now. You know, my feed was still full of architecture shots, street shots, street photography, candid shots. The, again, the occasional street portrait, but really not that much of it. So 
for me, it was just that sort of what held me back initially was this person doesn't know me from Adam. There isn't that actually that much portrait stuff on my feed. So it's perfectly, you know, within their rights to say, who the fuck is this guy? Bye. <laughs> <laughs> you nutcase. <laughs> you ain't got no portrait photography on your feed while you're asking me to shoot with you. So I got, I feel like I got lucky with the people that actually did say yes. Um, but even then, I thought this was just going to be something I'd try once or twice and I'd go, yeah, fuck that. I'll go back to street photography and landscapes and architecture. And it just didn't turn out that way. You know, when I started to get back results from the first few shoots that I was really happy with, that's what just switched something else in my brain. It just was like, I really like this. I want to do more of it. Well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because I find like there are two types of photographers generally. There are people that when you say you photograph people, they wince and they, they, they instantly pull back. Like they think it's just the most horrible experience that they could put themselves through. And then there's other people that when they sort of learn to love photographing people, you can't stop looking for new people to photograph. You see it all the time. Like you were talking about being on the train and seeing faces and thinking, I'd love to photograph that person. You were obviously already that type of photographer before you were a photographer. What is it about actually photographing people that's like the experience of actually doing it, the shoot itself? What do you enjoy about directing people, photographing people? What is it that it does for you? Um, I think for me, I mean, it's such a fucking cliche, but for me, I think it's just like just the human connection. Like, you know, for me, they got to a point where there was definitely a point where I crossed over and thought, I'm just not excited about going out and finding the next building to photograph. That shit doesn't do it for me anymore. Whereas put me in a situation where I'm working one-on-one with a model, one-on-one possibly with somebody who isn't actually used to be in front of camera, which I challenged myself to do more this year, uh, or, you know, working in a team of other people who want to create shit that, they, that they're proud of. Um, and I just find that, that, again, this is that human connection of working with other human beings um, whether again, whether it's one on one, whether it's in a team of people, I just, I just fucking thrive off it, man. <laughs> I can't lie. I can't, I can't lie at all. I just thrive off it. It really, it really gives me a huge buzz. All right. So you, you move from music to photography. And obviously, you talked about that first, the first camera where you're actually shooting raw files. You can change the lenses. You start to feel um, like you're really getting into it. At what point then does film make an appearance in what you're doing? Um, so the film, well, what happened was I sort of kind of randomly bought, um, one of the old Canon film cameras off eBay back in, this must have been like early 2017, uh, as a Canon AE1. Uh, I'd started to just like read articles about film photography, just in little bits, you know, um, and I bought it off, uh, off someone on eBay for a good price. And it was a few months before um, I went to a music festival in France and I decided to take this camera with me to said music festival, uh, took a few rolls of film, came back, got the stuff developed, kind of quite happy. I didn't screw up too many shots. Um, and then the following year, I decided to get another film camera and it was at the point where I was just starting to work with other team 
kind of people like a makeup artist, for example, to like adding a makeup artist into the shoots I was doing. And so I was, I had this thing, this, this setup where I would shoot mostly like digital. So let's say 90% digital, but in between I would capture some film images. So I'd, I'd essentially use one roll of 35 mil film so right. that I had just this little bit of extra, but it wasn't, I wasn't completely relying on film as my main kind of outlet at that point. Um, and I did that for a while. And then um, there was that, there was a point where I was starting to hear about this medium format film photography. I was like, what's this medium format film photography? So I'm starting to see pictures on Instagram. Um, a really good friend of mine who, who shoots a lot of medium format um, the more I was talking to him about what he does with it and how he was using it in his work, the more I was thinking, I got to learn about this shit like right. soon, <laughs> like really soon. Um, and I'm in, um, one of the WhatsApp groups I'm in, uh, of other photographers, um, really lovely guy, shout out to Ian Upton. He basically offered to lend anyone who wanted to his RB67. And I promptly got on a, private dm with him and just said listen mate can i borrow your camera and he was like yeah go on uh have you used one before i was like no i'll I'll look it up on youtube and he was like no 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 no, no. i'll I'll bring it down i'll bring it down with me so i i had booked a studio in stoke newington um to do a studio shoot and decided i wanted to try um, i wanted to properly dive in right use the medium format camera with lighting strobes i mean talk about don't do things by heart but anyway, Ian, Ian turned up with his camera, his light meter, which up until that point, I'd never used a light meter. I'd heard about these things, but I didn't know, I didn't know what the fuck a light meter was. Um, and so he turns up with his camera, this light meter, and um, he, he basically taught me how to use this RB67. He taught me the settings. He taught me what to watch out for, how to load the film. Um, you know, how to get it hooked up to flash strobes. And so we did, yeah, almost the entire shoot in that studio that, that day on film. And that, that sort of changed everything. Um, he would let me borrow his RB67 for like occasional periods. And in between that, I was renting other RZ67s off people um, just so that I could kind of shoot as much medium format as I could until I got my own one, of course. Well, okay. So you, we're in that ballpark now. And I, I said to you before we started, I was going to talk about this and I've never really spoken about this on the podcast before, but uh, you have the esteemed honor of, of, of being a representative of this cult. So something that um, I'm fully aware of is, is the reputation that Mamiya has. And more and more, it feels like in the last couple of years, it's growing and growing and growing and, and they're becoming more and more cult-like and um, the followers of the, of the Mamiya system. So for those that have never used one, that includes me. I'm, I'm one of those three people on earth that uses a Bronica. What is it about a Mamiya that, that's so much fun? What is it about? Is it, you know, is it the, is it the process? Is it the results? Is it everything? Try and sell me on the cult of Mamiya. Uh, the cult of Mamiya. So for me, um, what I love most about the Mamiya is, I mean, just when I've got that thing in my hand, I just like compared to holding, say, just an ordinary DSLR, like just 
grabbing a Canon 5D4. I just feel, I don't know, man. It just it just feels different holding that camera. Um, I love the fact that I can swap and change bits out uh, my choosing. Like, you know, I've got I've got two lenses for mine, a um, couple of film backs. I've very recently bought the uh, the meter prism finder, which basically takes out the inverse mirror shit where everything's back to front. <laughs> and it's also it's also got that amazing dial on the side where you can just put it in auto and it will meter everything for you. And it's got exposure compensation dial on it as well. So you can under or overexpose it if you choose to. Um, that's changed so much for me. And just before Christmas, I got the pistol grip that you put on the side, which allows you to hold it in a really like amazing ergonomic grip that helps with the extra weight the prism finder adds to the camera. Um, for me, it's just been such a reliable camera. Um, it, you know, it's rare that it, 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 it's rare that it does any sort of crap to me in terms of like finished shots. Occasionally something might happen. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, it's always going to be a temperamental camera. The camera's got to be at least 25 years old. The fact that I can foot put a flash trigger on it and sync speed up to, I think you can sync up to like 250, one over 250 for the second. I'm probably talking shit, but you can, you can have a pretty high sync speed if you're using it with flash strobes. The fact that I can put most modern flash strobes on it and that it works consistently is absolutely ridiculous. Um, it, that that still amazes me. Even now, when I go into studio, I think, ah, yeah, let's let's use the Mamiya with the strobes. Put this little Elinchrom flash trigger on it, and it just fires them off almost every single time. Um, and again, it's just it's reliably turned out such great results for me. Like I can't. I will try some other medium format cameras, but I can't long-term see myself using anything else other than Mamiya. I just can't see it. I'm, I'm fully wedded to, to Mamiya. <laughs> <laughs> it's my baby. <laughs> <laughs> I see from, the, from uh, your blog and your website and so on, um, one, of your, one of your sort of references to film, you mentioned about it being kind of more deliberate, more slow, more considered when it comes to photographing with film. It's one of those things that's kind of missed, I feel like, with modern cameras is that we're always trying to make them more and more idiot-proof. And I think that probably shows with some of the quality of work that's being produced by them. But it doesn't make the process any more fun. And, and so for my, for my day job, I use Sony's, um, not voluntarily because I have to because of my wife. She, she likes them, so I have, to, I have to do what I'm told. And to be honest with you, I find them too, too easy to use. I feel like a passenger more than I feel like I'm driving the camera. Whereas with where you've mentioned with film, it's more deliberate. I think that's something that's actually lost on a lot of photographers, more modern ones, that you should, you should actually be taking your time to enjoy the process of taking a picture. And you should actually be thinking about what you're doing, not just kind of using a, a processor with a lens on the front of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, I mean, I think very, very seriously, since I started shooting medium format, I think it's really changed my thinking in terms of how, you know, my processes with shooting and how I capture stuff, how I plan to capture stuff. Like, you know, I will happily shoot an editorial and I may only shoot six or seven rolls of medium format film 
because I've sort of done the thinking prior to the whole thing and, you know, planned a bit more about what I want to get out of it. Whereas that same editorial, I could come back with a memory card with a thousand shots in it, which is just a fucking pain in the ass. Just, <laughs> just on an admin level, it's a fucking pain in the ass. Like the selection process from a thousand to fifteen hundred shots is just, oh god. I mean, you do wedding photography, you know this shit. Yeah, you must come yeah. up with a memory card with like two and a half thousand shots on it. Hundred percent. Yeah, about two and a half thousand <laughs> average. Yeah. <laughs> so like the difference between that and coming home with you know coming home with negatives from the lab which numbers in like 70 to 80 shots tops oh my god that is such a big difference man such a big difference you've mentioned editorials and and you just talked it sort of about the planning that goes into it beforehand and i feel like this is something that just isn't really discussed openly that often between photographers that don't know each other well what's the process like for creating like an editorial in terms of like what's the time that you have something as an idea until you're shooting it until you're releasing it how do you go about building up on these ideas and and what do you do when you have an idea and it just doesn't work a lot of questions there sorry (laughs) um so sometimes an idea can come together very quickly um like, you know, you could come up with an idea with somebody else and be shooting it four weeks later. Um, whereas there have been a couple of other things where it's taken a couple of months. And that could be for a few reasons. You know, it could be because you want a particular a particular individuals in your team to make that shoot happen. And obviously people get busy in various ways, whether it's the model you've got in mind, whether it's the makeup artist, whether it's the stylist, set designer, whatever, you know, they may get like a big job. They may get busy at the the weekend that you've got planned. So sometimes that can take longer if you really are passionate about the people you want in on that idea in the first place. Um, And yeah, I think... Again, yeah, it, it depends on who who you you've got in mind. If you've got your heart set on a particular combination of individuals, sometimes that 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 can take time, you know. Or if you want to shoot in a particular, if you want to shoot outdoors on location in a particular type of weather, you might hold back until you've got a particular week or month in which you think you're going to reliably get that weather. I mean, <laughs> like for for instance, I mean. We, we, me and a particular stylist, so I'm planning something else with at the moment as we speak. Um, uh, we connected in when was it sort of May last year, and we were going to try and shoot something say six weeks later, but that didn't work out. And in the end, we didn't actually shoot the, the idea we had until mid July. Now, we thought mid July. It's pretty reliable sort of weather. It's mid July, isn't it? You know, it's going to be sun and breeze and we're shooting <laughs> we're shooting in Sussex by the coast. We thought, yeah, that's a pretty safe bet. Anyway, the weather leading up to the shoot was billed as being pretty fucking amazing, you know? And then halfway through the week, it kind of changed a bit. It was like, oh, I might rain at about three in the afternoon. We we're like, cool. I can live with that. Anyway, the day the day of the shoot, we got down at like 11 o'clock, I think it was. And unfortunately, by the time we had the first look ready, 
it started pissing down the rain. So we spent, it probably must have been a good 40 minutes in two cars waiting, waiting, deciding whether we should just fucking give up and go home, <laughs> cancel the whole thing, try and do it on a different day. And then in the end, we kind of got to the stage where it was like, I think we, it settled enough for us to go out on that pebble beach and start shooting. But I'm not going to lie, it was a very challenging shoot because the weather was less than ideal the whole day. And um, we we essentially were shot in Hastings in the first half of the day. The second half of the day, we planned to shoot in Canberra Sands. Now, you and I have seen enough pictures of Canberra Sands where there is beautiful sunshine, it's summery weather, half the shots of bikini shoots and all that shit. So we were like, that's the sort of weather that we're hoping for. Well, anyway, actually what happened was <laughs> second half of the day, we arrived at Campus Sands. The weather got worse. It was oh, so God. windy. Two poor models. I mean, it was just, uh, yeah, it was such a nightmare. It was such a nightmare. And, and the kicker was, kicker was, when we actually finished the shoot and we were driving back to London, the, the sky parted. <laughs> the sky parted. Beautiful pink around the, out, the edge of the clouds. The sun came right into the back of the fucking car. It was just like the weather had said, fuck you. You're not getting this weather until you've actually finished doing what you have to do. <laughs> and the thing it's is, you just, the way, uh, right? you know, we're in Britain, aren't we? You just sometimes you have to just roll with whatever the weather's got in store of you and it's not always predictable as 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 it turned out to be. But um but sometimes you can't, you know, it gets to the stage where actually to pull out or to cancel will put it back, you know, way further than you want it to be. And you just sometimes you just have to just make the decision to just go ahead and manage, you know, try and adapt and see what you can get out of it. But it got published, so we must have done something, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, having lived on the... I lived on the south coast in Sussex for about five years. Literally, we lived on the doorstep of the beach. And my my overriding memory of the weather there was that I just got so sick of the wind. So even when it's like a nice day, if you're photographing someone with long hair, it can it can drive you mad with the wind coming off the ocean <laughs> and stuff. And And to be honest with you, I think... I mean, I've spoken to a lot of Americans, Canadians, Australians, people from all around the world on this. And I really wish I could get people from abroad to understand how much the British weather hates the British public. Like it has a personality of its own. Whatever you're planning on doing, the weather is going to shit on it and ruin it for you. And then, like you said, the worst part is that when you decide to scrap it, like give up, walk away, that's when the weather goes, oh, sorry, were you looking for some nice weather? Here you go. Like when, you, when you've when you got to the breaking point, that's when it decides. It's like today we're on another lockdown, third lock, lockdown 3.0, I think they're now calling it. And I look out the window here and it's like bright sunshine. So the, the two weeks that people were actually allowed out of their house in the past like nine months was raining. And now we're back to, we're back to staring out of our windows at how lovely and bright it is outside. Um, let's go back to film real quick. So in the planning for these like editorials or planning your work in general, do you set out with like, okay, it's going to be this kind of film stock shoot. Like, you know, the film stock based on the idea, or do you give yourself some options to see what works after the fact? Um, 
I have to be honest, I'm really fucking boring, mate. I, I shoot I shoot mostly Porsche 400, so it's never an issue. The film stock's never an issue, actually. Um, I mean, occasionally, um, I'll shoot Fuji Pro 400H, um, but for me, it's 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 still it's still the old Portra 400, man. It's just so fucking reliable. I mean, I've metered that thing at all sorts of speeds. I've metered it at 200 and got the lab to develop normally. Looks great. Um, I've pushed the film to 800, got onto just the processing, still looks pretty good. Um, yeah, it's just so reliable. Um, there's really not any other film that I feel I can rely on or that I would stock lots of, which I do, <laughs> um, because it's just it's just so flexible. It's so adaptable to whatever you decide to do with it. Um, so that, and actually what, that's what, again, I love about that, that aspect of things is that I'm, that, that takes out a whole other ball ache about, you know, how do I color grade it? Or how, like right, that right. portrait is the color grade, you know? Um, I mean, obviously you can take it to the nth degree in the edit, but you know, portrait is portrait, you know, it's just, it just is, it's, it's just, there's no fucking about, it doesn't, it doesn't go funny on you very often. Like other film stocks that I've used. Um, it really is just reliable. There is a big reason why so many people use it because as I say, it's flexible, it's reliable. You, you more or less know what you're going to get, you know? Um, so that, yeah. So with that out of the equation, then for me, it's just, yeah, just to kind of, bringing together the idea because sometimes it actually might not be my idea, but then I might add stuff to it that I think I can bring to the idea. Um, right. But, but for me, regardless of what I do try and do now, um, I, I got this idea from the photographer Campbell Addy, actually, he, he did a webinar um, that I kind of joined a while back, but he says he sketches a lot of his ideas before he shoots an editorial which I started doing myself um, sort of middle of last year. I started doing a lot myself. I'm not the best drawer in the world, but it does help. Um, it really sort of helps to kind of focus you on what you actually want to achieve out of the shoot. Um, and it also, given that I'm shooting on what is essentially finite resources, even more so because if I can kind of lock down the sort of, shots compositions i want to get before i even pick up the camera and start loading filming it it also saves a lot of time i'm not standing there going mm, what should we do now you know it's like okay right, right, right. right here's one and, and it's not like i'm going to stick to it rigidly but it's just there as a guide for me to glance over every now and again i can go all right let's just try this um and again as long as it as long as it feeds into whatever the idea is whether it's the idea that's come from me it's come from the stylist, come from the makeup artist. As long as what what I've kind of noted down feeds into that, then I'm happy to to kind of use it as some sort of guide throughout the shoot. Um, and it's it's actually yeah, I think it's served me pretty well to be honest. Um, and I've kept I'm keeping them all. I'm keeping them all in a folder. <laughs> I look back on them a couple of times and I go, oh yeah, I remember that idea. I, I tried, didn't work. Or I try, I didn't try it, but I maybe I could try it on a different shoot. Um, but yeah, I found it very useful, very, very useful to kind of, uh, focus, focus on the ideas and stuff just to kind of sketch out, sketch out the bits. It's it, essentially, I'm essentially like storyboarding yeah. a still shoot is what I'm doing. I mean, what I find fascinating with 
well, with with any adult really, because of the fact that I've grown up apparently as just such a child with control issues and feeling like I need to have a say over everything. And I, I think that actually stems from uh, my previous life working in the kitchen where I think everyone knows the stereotype of what it's like to work in a, in a high pressure kitchen. And I was usually the guy making that slightly more high pressure than it needed to be because uh, I was a bit of an asshole when I was younger. I, I, I'm always fascinated by people that are happy to give up creative control, especially when it's something that's going to have their name put to it. And it's a big difference you see between movies and photography in the sense that movies are very much a collaborative effort and, and photography for a lot of people is very much a solo endeavor. Um, and I think that might even be a factor for why some people don't like to photograph other people. When it comes to your experience, you know, is, is it just your nature that you're, you're happy to collaborate with other people or does it take time to build up trust with the right people to collaborate with? Um, I think maybe it's a bit of both. Um, I think, again, depending on where the ideas come from, um, I'm definitely happy to get people's ideas on aspects of the shoot. You know, like if I'm working with a team of people, essentially I've got to trust in the expertise of all those individuals involved, whether it's the makeup artist making suggestions about, I don't know, eyeliner or, you know, relative to what lighting I'm going to plan to use on that shoot or the stylist making suggestions about, you know, changing the jewelry that they're using in that particular look. You know, there's, there's, there's all these other people who have expertise in things that I know nothing about. I'm not a fucking stylist, (laughs) nor do I plan to be. Um, So, for example, so I would always trust in their expertise in their particular field. Um, and also, yes, I I also want to make sure the people I'm working with are people um, in whose expertise I do trust. Um, and so like this year particularly, it's been a really good um, period to actually um, – collaborate with lots of different combinations of people, some of whom I've worked with repeatedly again and again, because it's got to that stage where I'm just like, I just trust this person to be part of this, part of this setup because I've seen how good they are or what they brought to that last shoot. Um, Which is great because like that's sort of where I wanted to be anyway. I wanted to be able to kind of have this network of people that I can tap into for you know certain projects you know i might not use say that makeup artist for that project but i might use her for that one because you know thinking about what she did for me in that other one she could definitely step it up and do something even bigger and better for this one so it's it's a good it's been a good period to actually kind of form this network of people that i can go right she's she designs amazing sets in this way let me ask her about this idea and then bring one, two, three other people into it and and work from there. But yeah, I think it is definitely, I do, you know, I've been trying to get to that stage where I've got enough people that I feel I can trust in to involve at any given moment and know that, that we can produce something good out of it. Well, something that kind of occurred to me when you were talking earlier about portrait being so universally, obviously liked but it's fantastic as well for what it what it does and it's it's interesting that like uh, if i look at an image taken by a photographer that is kind of 
undeniably a Californian photographer and they shoot on Portra, you, you see Portra as being perfect for, for doing that kind of work. And, and yeah, I sit here and I look at the work that you've taken and we're in, we're in England. We couldn't be further from California unless we were literally in Scotland. And I, I think to myself, your images look to me like London images. They look like English images in, in the best possible way. They have that, that great personality. They have that, that I don't even know what the word is. It's kind of an intangible quality where I feel like I know the identity of the work just from the aesthetic, as opposed to knowing the backstory of it. Um, what's, you know, what is it that makes up the difference between English portrait photography, English fashion photography, and what we see elsewhere? Because I think there is a difference, um, but I just can't quite place my finger on what the difference is. That's a very good question. Um, I mean, I feel like, I mean, it's hard to, I feel like it's possibly, I think it possibly could be down to something as simple as the, the British sense of humour. I feel like the British sense of humour has always been different to that of our American counterparts. And, 100%. and I feel like something as simple as that can have a bearing on the photos that we produce here compared to the Americans as well. Um, definitely. Yeah. I think, and I think just, you know, I mean, obviously where you live and where you grow up is always going to affect, you know, how you create. Um, and, and maybe it is the sense of humor the shit more, you know, more or less shit weather, um, you know, <laughs> how diverse our, our population is as well. I mean, I think all of that um, feeds into, you know, how we create photographs, how we design clothes, you know, how we make music. I think it, I think it bleeds into all of those sorts of creative areas, to be honest with you. Yeah. I think that that like, the way that you deal with what isn't working is what makes you British. I think that's the difference, right? Is is how we deal with adversity or how we deal with things that piss us off or anything like that. That's what makes you British. And I actually feel like the aesthetic of especially London portrait and fashion photography is very similar to New York in the sense that they don't always have the best weather, but they're they're a lot more honest with their photography. It's a lot more about like grit and texture and and realness and expression as opposed to what you see on the west coast of america and from from people that want to look like they're photographing in the west coast of america where it's like very clean and clinical and bright and smiley it's actually nice to see the cooler tones and the the less um smiling from the nose down it's nice to see some more real emotion and i think that's like one of the things that really drew me into your work was the fact that um, I find so much photography in this day and age to be clinical and it's very much about like everything looking great and everything being tucked in in Photoshop and everything being like clinically perfect, like sterile. Whereas with yours, it feels like there's personality. It feels like there's that texture, there's mood, as well as it being an image about a mood. It's a, it, it, the person actually playing a role other than just being you know, a, a geometrical thing in the way of a camera. It feels like there's more of a, a personality to the, to the images that you take. 
How do you go about selecting the people that you stick in front of the camera? What's the process? <laughs> um, how do I go about selecting? Um, I think I'm sort of at the stage where I, I think a lot of, I feel like a lot of the selecting is actually, has actually started a couple of years ago. So like, I mean, even last year, there's, some people that I worked with last year who I've been keeping tabs on for a good 18 months beforehand. Um, and it will be just somebody who, you know, for me, they interest me as someone to capture and they might not necessarily be that all American, you know, commercial looking, um, person, which, it's just yeah it's just just not for me really <laughs> like, right um and i don't know i i seem to have been drawn to a lot of people who've got short or shaven hair <laughs> i don't know how that's happened <laughs> but um but i don't i just i do feel i don't know what it is but i do feel like when you've sort of not got the distraction of long hair you really see you know, you really see the person, you really see the face, you really see emotion. Um, and that is not, that's not been particularly deliberate. That's just, just kind of how it's worked out, you know? Um, right. But I don't know. I feel, um, but yeah, again, I'm always, I'm not always drawn to the people who look like, you know, typically, you know, your typical kind of image of uh, a model. And again, in that sort of commercial sense of things. Um, and so some, you know, often I will, for instance, often I will kind of do shoots with people who aren't always signed, for example, you know, they right. are just people who, who may, you know, who may be doing modeling freelance or, it may be something that they occasionally do, but for me, it was when I really got into photographing people, it was never about only sticking to people that were signed to agencies. You know, that, that once I got into it became more like a byproduct, you know, once I started to, to find other people that happened to be signed, but that was never, that for me was never the be all and end all about how I cast people to photograph. It was, it was always about that person and whether they've got something that interests me about them that I want to capture, regardless of whether they were assigned to, to an agency or not. I mean, on an admin level, it is easier if you're dealing with somebody who's signed to an agency for me now, because um, it means I can do organ the organisation via their booker, and God forbid that person gets optioned for something at the last minute, that agency will do their very best to try and source your replacement. Where if yep. I'm dealing with individually with the model and the model pulls out, well, I'm kind of fucked, you know, I'm kind of going, anyone, <laughs> is anyone available this Saturday? <laughs> you have to do the, uh, you have to put the story up on Instagram where you just know you're basically <laughs> planting seeds in the desert because nothing's going to come of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one thing, one thing I definitely find with, I mean, just to, just to talk about agencies for a second, but I do get the impression that the sort of traditional agency is going to collapse soon like a flan in the cupboard because A, there's so many of them springing up that are incredibly dodgy to say the least, like weird, you know, everyone's now agency represented by some obscure thing that you've never heard of. And yeah, the other, the other side of it is, is this constant need to only take people on that already have huge followings, which kind of voids 
the purpose of the agency if that person's already networking to that high of a standard it kind of it creates an interesting paradox but when it comes to my process for looking at models that I would be interested in working with I kind of have two things I focus on but one of them is really obscure and I thought this is completely regular and then when you start saying stuff out loud you realize how weird you are is I I tend to look at hands and I feel like if you look at someone's hands in their photos, if you're not going to see them in person, if you're going entirely by their portfolio, you can kind of tell how comfortable someone is in in their photos by their hands because people can pull faces. And it's the first thing we think to do when we're trying to convince someone of something. But your hands tend to tell you how comfortable someone actually is in, in a scenario. Um, I, I have recently found out that that makes me practically a serial killer in some people's eyes, which I find quite, <laughs> quite uh, upsetting. But, you know, what is, what is to you, what is a good subject? What's a good model for you? What have they got to be on a shoot? For me, I, I feel like they, I think for me, it really helps if they're up to a point comfortable in their own skin, which I know is kind of an odd thing to, to, to say about somebody who should by that point be used to being in front of camera. But that for me does does pay dividends. I mean, obviously, I'm always going to try and do my work to make sure that you know I've built enough of a connection with the model, you know, in and around the shoot to 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 ensure that they are you know that they are comfortable with what they're doing. But right. if if that model is you know even halfway comfortable in their in their own skin. Um, that really, really helps, really makes my job a bit easier um, because then, you know, you've got connection going, you've got, you know, the addition of the other team members that, you know, are, are buzzed to to create what it is we're trying to, to, to get towards. Um, and that, as, I mean, that, that, all of that can help make for, for better photographs. Um, you know, I mean, there's been occasions where there has, you know, I had a model and she's not, you can just kind of tell she's not quite, um, she's not quite, uh, you know, comfortable enough or perhaps just experienced enough, you know? Um, yeah. And I mean, obviously you're going to get that with newer faces, um, newer faces that you work with. But, um, but yeah, that, you know, that being said, you know, I've, I've worked with new faces who just, have just killed it from the get go. So, um, it's not always about, you know, how long that person has been with that agency or how long that person has been, um, not always about how long that person has been modeling. Some people just, just have it, you know? Um, but, but yeah, I, I do think if, if they, if they have, relatively if they're relatively comfortable in their own skin um that just makes everything a lot easier well i know especially here in england we're sick to the back teeth of hearing about what's gone on for the last 10 months if one more person says the phrase the new normal to me i'm going to punch him in the throat <laughs> but you do have a, another esteemed privilege of a first with this podcast which is this is the first one recorded since i've been positive for covid so this is in fact a, a, a covid podcast because i'm having to mute the mic between me talking so that i can cough my guts up which has been a real treat i can tell you 
something that I think has been really hard and the British government did a great job of shitting down the throats of people that work in creative industries by completely limiting the um, appreciation of what they do and, and how much it's actually missed at the moment and the, the difficulties that people work in creative industries are having. In terms of like the bending and the breaking of creatives over this pandemic, how have you kept yourself positive? And I know that's obviously a very difficult word for 2020, 2021, but how do you stay positive? How do you stay creative? How do you stay inspired? Um, I think for me, I mean, I mean, always that first lockdown was a fucking killer for all of us, um, obviously. Um, and I think... I think the only, the way that I tried to stay positive was to kind of still be in dialogue with the people that I wanted to work with when we came out of lockdown and to still be working on ideas, to still be, you know, thinking about the stuff I wanted to do in future and, you know, how I wanted to work once we were able to work. Um, yeah, I think it was just just to keep, keep focused on actually you know the ideas that I was going to hopefully realize once we were able to be out and about a bit more it was kind of that was that 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 was the bit that was kind of like that's the bit that's going to give me hope is the fact that we are going to come out of this a bit and we will be able to create again um in some capacity and that you know I need to kind of be ready for it when we are yeah, um, and I think, and I do feel like when we did come out, I really fucking was ready for it. <laughs> I mean, so so much scheming and ideas and sketching, and so when I when I came out, I literally like I do feel like I hit the ball roll, like hit the ground running. Like once the opportunity and the you know the the the, the relative freedom came back, I was like, I'm not fucking wasting any time here, people. <laughs> Let's make that one happen. That one happened. That one happened. Right. I think I think it was definitely like a part of my brain that was just trying to make up for the time we lost to lockdown. So it was just like hell for leather from from that point on. I was just determined just to do as much as I could. Um, you know, not knowing when or in what shape another lockdown was going to take. Um, in the run up to the one that we we had in November, I was just yeah, I was just on it, on it, on it, on it, on it, on it. I was I was determined not to stop until I absolutely had to. Well, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about the British sense of humour. I think the difference I've I've noticed between the English people that I know, obviously, and, and I'm surrounded by, and and some of the uh, stateside people that I've spoken to with the podcast is that we kind of knew. That the the optimism going forwards, we we didn't trust like we don't trust optimism. We know there's something else coming. Every time someone says, Okay, that's it, it's all out of the way, we know, okay, there's a but, there's something coming here where it's not gonna be positive. Um so we kind of prepare ourselves a little bit better. And like you said, just being ready to kind of treat lockdown the same way that we treat rain, in that like, okay, there's there's only gonna be a short amount of sun, so we're gonna get out, we're gonna use it, and then we you know, we're not gonna waste a second thinking about it when it's finally here. I obviously want to say a massive thank you for you taking the time to do this. I do have one last question, if you don't mind um, me taking up just a little bit more of your time. I put you in the same category as another podcast uh, guest I've had on, a, a gentleman called uh, Geraldo Malaval. And he's he does these incredible retro film portraits, very, very stylized to look very much like the 70s and 80s. Uh, fantastic photographer, wonderful work. And I, I wonder as well, 
with your work, do you feel like there's a kind of link between film photography and that that kind of I call it a retro fetish. I don't mean that to be a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I I feel like design has completely fallen off a cliff the last 15 to 20 years. I think everything now is utilitarian and boxy and static and boring. Cars now are all ugly and I feel like there's there's a, a lot has been lost in in terms of design to just function. With film photography, do you feel like there is a strong link between the sort of the rise of popularity with film and people's kind of dislike of modern modern design and and the way things look when they're modern? Yes, I think that probably that probably is um, because yeah, I think you know that sort of history of film photography, you know, when it was in its sort of heyday, definitely hark back to when things had a bit more of an individuality about them. Um, whereas so much of what we've got around us nowadays has been sort of sanitized or, you know, made as generic and as you say, as functional as possible. And I think, yeah, people sort of do, kind of attach more of an individuality to what they can get when they use a film camera, when they have to wait for film to be developed, um, when they've got the option to actually be able to kind of print film work, um, which is something I've yet to do. Um, I will do it at some point. Um, so yeah, I think it does, I think it does sort of, yeah, track back to sort of that individuality and, um, I think, yeah, a lot of people, you know, are definitely invested in film for that, definitely for that reason, for sure. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. It's uh, it's nice to talk to someone that appreciates the humour of what it is to be English and what it is to be constantly in fear of our own stupidity. So that's, that's always a treat. <laughs> I'm a massive fan of your work. Um, we've kind of finally penned what this podcast is over the last few episodes, which is that I'm just creating my own algorithm so that I can force people to like stuff that I like and therefore there'll be more of it so I get more of what I want. So the motivation is incredibly selfish. I do apologize for that. But uh, the most important part is we push as many people as possible now towards finding your work. So where's the best place people can go to see what it is that you do? I would say um, straight to the Instagram Kid Circus. Um, you can also sort of see more expanded universe at um, kidcircus.co.uk as well. There you go. You're a gentleman. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure, man. Absolute pleasure.